Hi everybody and welcome to a special edition of the Endless Sounds podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by David Webb, a name we all know from being heavily linked with the director of football role at Celtic Football Club. How are you, David? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. It's a pleasure and thanks for agreeing to come on. We do really appreciate that on the show. Thank you very much for that. So no. before before we touch upon Celtic, the, the team we all love on this podcast anyway, we'll go into your life in football in general, just your, your job roles and stuff. So how did you first get into football, David, and what was the steps that you took to get into football? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's going to make me sound quite old now. Uh, um, <laughs> so I started probably back in 2001. Um, I've sort of a brief sort of playing career to end when I was 21, playing at non-league and stuff. And I, I found myself at the the old Wimbledon for about two years working um, just on uh, in the community with the schools programs and the development centers and the academy and unfortunately that Wimbledon folded and I went to Crystal Palace the academy and worked with um, sort of various age groups under 10s under 11s under 12s um, and through that I had some good success of you know finding a few good young players there um, Wilfie Zaha and Sean Scanner as well, that have gone on to have really good careers in their both respected journeys. From there, I went to Tottenham Academy in 2005 um, for two years. And that, again, that was on a part-time basis, working with um, academy age groups on a coaching capacity from the age, ages 11 and 13. Then I got my first full-time role into football as head of youth at Millwall. And that was working uh, for the age groups, nines to 14s. And that was coaching and recruitment and just working on sort of the structures and the processes that, that involved. Um, when that departed, I, um, I was doing my, academy, just doing my academy manager's license during that period as well. And I managed to do a little bit of consulting work for Bayer Leverkusen while I was head of youth at Millwall. And because I had to do a study visit and um, part of that study visit was to sort of find out about the structures of the club and how it worked and all, all the sort of working capacity on a day-to-day basis. And through that, I managed to do some part-time con- consulting work alongside the Millwall. Um, from Millwall, I went into a sort of a, a recruitment position at Southampton that was looking at players 15s to 21s at the the elite level. Then from there, I got my first role in first team recruitment. Um, and I was head of recruitment role working with uh, Bournemouth with Eddie Howe for a two-year period where we were pretty successful. We went from being a championship club, so first year in a championship club from League One in a two-year period, getting into the Premier League. From there... I went back to work with Poch at Tottenham as head of elite and that was sort of head of elite recruitment like 17s to through to first team so that was a really good period working um, with Poch during that during that spell because Tottenham had a good successful period then um, from there I went to Sweden as a technical director of a club called Ostersunds where Graham Potter sort of made his name before going on to Swansea and Brighton. 
and during that period of, of Ottersons, um, Huddersfield um, took me out of my contract and in the director of football role with them. And that's where I was for the last year to currently um, sort of where I am now on a little bit of a break. No worries, David. That's a fantastic journey right from the start. But if you don't mind me just rewinding back to Crystal Palace, you, you mentioned the name there that springs springs out to most people who will listen anyway, Wilfred Saha. At yeah. that age, at that age, spotting players must be difficult because 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. What, what can them type of players, what, what made them stand out from the rest? Um, well, with someone like Wilf, he was uh, obviously under 11's coach, I think, at the time. And um, it was a newly formed team he played for, which was in, um, if anyone knows, sort of district football in England, especially on the southeast, there's a t- league called the Tandridge League. And this, there was this newly formed team called Whitehorse Wanderers. And they were sort of started right at the bottom of the sort of third division. And um, it was based in an area called in West Croydon. And um, my little cousin played for the team. And I remember him saying to me, he said, we've got this, we've got this, we've got this player who keeps scoring loads of goals. He's really quick and he's really fast. So he kept mentioning to me. So I thought, I mean, when I didn't have a game for Crystal Palace Academy on the Sunday, I went to have a look at him. And um, yeah, he was, he was true to what, what my cousin said. He was, you know, he was quick. He was very skillful. He was very raw. Because it was his sort of first real taste of, I think, of um, especially Sunday league football at that time. But he had a real sort of like spirit about him in terms of his character. He was um, sort of kind of a street kid, so he had that fighting mentality. He scored about five goals. Um, very, very good at one v one. Very good at um, like he is now, drifting past, going past players with ease, and he scored a lot of goals. So from there. I thought, um, why not bring him in and give him a chance at Crystal Palace uh, at an academy level where he can sort of test himself a little bit. And during that time, he had we, we placed him on what we call like a six-week uh, trial form, which he would um, undertake a series of training sessions and then play, play games on Sunday. But he hadn't played a game in five weeks. And it came to sort of the last week and the coach, because he was playing a year up at uh, under 11 said to me he said um, he's really struggling in training he said he's good in a small side of games he said but he's struggling with the drills and I said have you seen him in a game and he said no I said well you need to put him in a game I said that's where he's best he's he's coming from unstructured football of course he's not going to be able to jump straight in and do some of the stuff what's being asked of the other kids at academy level I said that's where he'll come alive and he said okay so he put him in a game against Tottenham Academy um and then he phoned me straight after the game. He said, right, right, Dave, we've got to sign him. I said, why, what happened? He said, well, he's just scored six goals. He said, um, he said he was probably the best player on the pitch and one of the best young players I've seen in ages. So from then, he used his sort of like raw sort of street talent. And it was sort of developed over the years through Crystal Palace Academy. Yeah. I mean, the the, the way Wilfred Saha comes, springs the mind to me is obviously... He's, he's skillful, he's quick. I think he went to United as well for Palace and he, he went back mm. again. But it's one of them players as well, as you said, you have to go down to that level to spot them players. And I think with a lot of clubs yeah. now, especially, they don't actually go go deep into like grassroots football to find these street talents, as you, as you said. But <clears throat> see in terms of the different structures within the clubs you've been at, so Ostrichens, Spurs, Bournemouth with Eddie Howe, what the, 
from elite clubs to like the likes of Ostriches in Sweden, what differs? Yeah. What's what? What type of remit do you have with that club compared to like like an elite level club? Yeah, Ostersund was um, it was a really fantastic experience for me because I just finished um, like my role at Tottenham, and it was a chance to do a different role, like a technical director role, which I hadn't done before. And it was sort of my next logical progression from being sort of head of first team recruitments, having those sort of senior roles at premiership level. So I wanted to experience a different culture because um, I enjoyed my experience briefly at Leverkusen. Um, I wanted to test myself abroad. And Ostersons had a you know, had a sort of feel-good story coming into it with, with the work that, that Graham and his team done with Ostersons getting into Europe. Um, having you know victories over, I think it was Hurt Berlin, Galatasaray, and then notably um, Arsenal. Well, um, and his the story of what he had done and bringing them all the way back up through the leagues into being like a respected team in the Aspenskin. So I was attracted to that. I was attracted to the the project, um, and the remit was at, at, um, at Ostersons was to find players that like talented younger players probably demographic age demographic between sort of 17 and 21 22 that had probably at the ages of 15 16 17 that showed loads of promise and potential but hadn't quite fulfilled it and had been at big clubs and maybe had a small taste of a first team experience but hadn't quite made their name in the game yet so it was giving these talents um more or less a, a chance to restart their career in a completely different environment. So um, th- that's what that's what I really enjoyed because we we brought some English players over, um, players like Charlie Colkett who'd done really well there. Ravel Morrison um, came back from um, from Lazio where he hadn't been playing too much. Then there was then there was players like um, Blair Turgett, who's, who's playing, who scored, I think, like 11, 12 goals there last year, was on. We took him from a free from Maidstone. He had been quite um, promising in his early days at West Ham, and then a few, then a few other ones. Um, like called Thomas Isherwood, who's just been sold to a German Bundesliga club, had been at Bayern, and then he found himself at Bradford when we took him. Still only twenty. Isaac was a combo, I think, had been at Chelsea as a young player with Loftus Cheek and Charlie, and then we managed to get him on a free. So we managed to sign, what was really good about that was we managed to sign seven or eight players on a sort of total budget of about 150,000. Um, and asking them, them players then to go and compete on a first team stage in sort of the, you know, on the big, in the big league in Sweden was, was quite an achievement because it's the first chance for those for those young players to really showcase what they can do. So I was attracted to that sort of project of watching players that showed early promise in their footballing potential, then getting the chance to showcase it in a first team environment where maybe they wouldn't have had been so lucky to do so maybe in England. So it was a small, it was a very small club. Um, I think capacity was about 10, 11,000. Um, yeah, had an English-speaking sort of coach, and Ian Birchner was a, was a young coach to go from Graham. Um, the owner, Daniel Schimberg, had a real vision um, of how he wanted the club to go forward. And it was quite historical in terms of, you know, what, what he had achieved to this date, which was, you know, which was fantastic. So 
I was more attracted to the, you know, the romance of, of the story and, you know, watching, it's like a film, watching these young players grow. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I remember Watson, uh, Austerson's in the Europa League against them teams and they performed well above their level. And, and oh. see, in ter- see in terms as well, David, obviously the head of recruitment roles, technical director, and then moving into the director of football roles, but most notably with um, the likes of Bournemouth, Austerson's and Southampton, it's all... Not, maybe not similar in terms of level and finance, but the level of club in the league they're at, maybe they're mid-level, mid-level club teams in the Premier League, and then you've got a, a mid-level yeah. to low-level Swedish team. With, with the likes of Bournemouth and Southampton, their recruitment strategy, does that involve bringing in young players for resale value? Now, we're seeing the Southampton buy Virgil van Dijk from Celtic and sell them for £80 million, and he's the best yeah. centre-back in world football at the moment. But yeah. is their remit quite similar to the club in Sweden? Yeah, it was, just on a bigger scale. Um, and, and I suppose that's what helped with the Ostersons' role because I'd, I'd done it at a, a bigger scale with players um, with considerably sort of commanding a lot more bigger fees than they did at Osterson. So um, if we sort of look at Bournemouth, for example, during that period I was there, Bournemouth had just come up from League One. Eddie, Eddie and Jason had done, the coaching team had done a fantastic job. And um, I was joining sort of a new, it was a new role for me. It was a new role for the club, sort of head of first team recruitment. And and it was a real chance to build sort of a process and um, put our own stamp on how we wanted to recruit players, combining it with the methodology about Bournemouth played, how Eddie played and the environment of the club were all contributing factors to how we recruited players. It wasn't just, a, you know, the technical, tactical, physical attributes, all them are, you know, they're all key. But it was, you know, we delved into a lot more and we found a system that worked for, for us. And we managed to get players of that value where um, players like Junior Stanislas was on a free. Adam Smith, I think, was about 150,000. Both players are still there now. Callum, Callum was, I think, 2.2. Um, and then there was players like Dan Goslin on a free. Um Andrew Sermon was on a free, Josh King was on a free, Arthur Boric was on a free. So these were all these were all players um, during that period where, again, over a two-year period, I think we spent sort of around about four million in getting in getting promoted to the Premier League, um, which was was incredible on our budget. So it was just, that that sort of aligns my eyes to. How how working all together as a as a group of individuals at a football club can you know can breed a good amount of success. They don't have to have the biggest budget. You don't have to have the you know the, the best facilities. Um, not even necessarily the best players. But it was it was the whole it was the whole unity, the whole alignment of the club. Um, and sort of Eddie was the you know he was the face of that. But Eddie himself will say that it was a. It was a whole team effort from the playing staff to the footballing staff, even through to sort of like the catering staff and the match day staff. It was everyone had um, the same vision for the club and we all worked towards that. And that's how, you know, that success was generated in such a short period of time. I've been able to achieve Premier League status for the club the size of Bournemouth. Yeah, I, th- I think as well, David, it's quite telling that most of the players or if not all the players you mentioned are still played with Bournemouth in the Premier League. And as, as you as you said as well, it was signed under a, a tight budget, and it, it just goes to show with the right scouting department in place, you can find them players at cheap prices, and they still give you a level of uh, competitive football in, a, in the top league in the world, so to speak. But just going to be a bit deeper, David. See, in terms of player identification, 
How, yeah. how as like a head of recruitment or technical director roles, do, do you identify players? Is it a long drawn out period or is there just a set list? You just go by and go but one by one. No, I, I think it's a bit of a process and each club will have their own sort of viewpoint and standpoint of what works for them. But the clubs I've worked with, especially I suppose Bournemouth and Tottenham were quite interlinked and it was, and it was quite process driven of understanding First of all, the football philosophy of the club. So that's how both Pochettino and Eddie Howe played. Um, then it was having an understanding of, um, you know, the environment as well. And both cl- both managers were really big on the character side. So once the sort of technical, tactical, physical and sort of the data parameters that we use, because each, each club will use their own data, how they want to analyse players and what, and what outliers mean, you know, more specifically to them. But the way so we used it at both clubs was um, we used all of that in quite a skillful way. But we was we was really big on the character side, and then that's not always the easiest thing to find out, especially at the identifiable, identifiable stage when you're looking at players. So, but both, but we, but I think it's to understand as a as a scouting department is is understanding your club first and foremost. So your recruitment team has got to understand your club's objectives, the environment, um, what it wants to achieve, what it wants to be, what it wants to identify on the pitch, what it is. And then once you've once you've once you've got the nuts and bolts of that, then you can start identifying sort of like your short term, long term, medium targets of players position specific. Um, sort of planning on those. So that could be a short term fix or a long term fix. But each each of the clubs I was at, there was always a, there was always succession plans, and that would be um, especially at Tottenham. So we had to, you know, had a really good academy. So we'd always look to see what was within our academy as well, like the elite players that could come through into sort of that first team elite environment. Because I think I was reading the stats that Poch, you know, produced during his time at Southampton and Tottenham over 15 England internationals. Um, so that was a big, that was a big skill set for us as well to, to, to utilise the academy and what was coming through. And if there's going to be a cost implication of we're spending X amount on academy, we want to see the best ones coming through. And if we didn't have them, could we, that was my job to identify them in the 17s to 21s from, from um, other competitors in the UK and Europe. And then aligning all of those strategies, and then it would become to. So it was never a, it was never a knee-jerk reaction. Right in January, a strike is injured. We need to go and buy one. It was always, it was always trying to anticipate what we might need in advance, where we might need to strengthen. Especially even the fact that there's players that might not, you know, renew their contracts. So we're not going to let contracts run all the way down. Where, you know, it's a depreciating asset, and then we've all suddenly got to go and buy one. So. It's trying to cover sort of all the exit points um, from the scouting processes, so we could sort of plan and uh, in advance as much as we could. So we're never in that position where, come the transfer windows, it was all panic stations. Right, what do we need? Of course, you have to be reactive because sometimes opportunities come up that you haven't planned for, and you've got to be reactive to those as well if they fit your requirements. But um, it was always having that trying to be one one step ahead because even at Tottenham, Tottenham was a you know it's a massive club, you know, it's a, and it was competing the time I was there to, you know, it finished twice in the Premier League 
on on budgets not as big as Man United, Man City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal. Um, the sort of players that Tottenham are recruiting were players that have really evolved into you know world clubs. Players like Alderweireld and Song and Deli Ali. So and these were all um, sort of underneath the radar type players at the time. Yeah. So see as well, David. Sorry, um, in terms of uh, player identification, you mentioned some cracking players are in terms of Song and Deli Ali, them types of level of players. But and there's a lot of speculation around certain clubs. Does does the manager? get the final say or the scouting department does in negotiations and signs of players? No, I, I, no, I, I think at the clubs I was at, um, the managers, um, both managers had sort of, well, a Bournemouth Ed always had the final say. That was, um, we would all do the work because we all understand what, what type of players we was recruiting for. So when we come to sort of meetings prior to that, we'd always have meetings as a senior management team. So that would be someone like myself, both Ed and JT, um, sort of our head of data analytics, um, maybe the CEO, like the key decision makers were in there all the time. So it wasn't just, right, OK, we're going to sign this player who think he's best for this. I think the manager, um, him, and, him and both Poch, they had, they had um, sort of the final say once all the work was done. But And this was sort of the strength of, of, of being together because... Whichever roles you're in, if it's in a sporting director type role, it's you know, it's not always the the right decision sometimes to sign the players without the manager's you know input or at least having sort of a, the final say or you know majority of say because at the end of the day the manager or the head coach has to work with those players day in day out. So a hundred percent, they have to be comfortable with you know with what's being put in front of them. And they have to be agreed to that. Yeah, if if. If you look at the the current situation, my club Celtic finds himself in. In, yeah. in terms, in terms as well, at the moment there's a lot of speculation about manager positions and director of football. But in a in a way, could you give us uh, what what way does the director of football really work? What is that detail? What is the remit for that? Yeah, I think each clubs will have their own um, view on it, and will have their own roles and responsibilities on it. Um, a sporting director's role or director of football's role, whichever way you, you want to word it, would be as like, um, I think it's like a, it's usually a supporting framework and, and, and supports the long-term vision and the strategy of the football club. Um, and that would be, he might have, uh, he or she might have that where um, there will be certain footballing departments under their remit in that, and that could in that could be like recruitment, academy, sports science, analytics, uh, medical, uh, women's football. You know, it could have a you know combination of roles, but then also it's to support um, it's to support the head coach and the manager as well, and and sort of what he needs because you know he's going to be the manager or the head coach. Is gonna, the majority of his time is going to be concentrating with the first team and trying to win football matches and building. Um, and, and trying to build success on the pitch going forward. So the sporting director should work together with the head coach and the manager during that process and sort of be that that um, that buffer in between them and sort of the, maybe even the board level CEO um, and the ownership. So, and again, it creates that, you know, that, 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 that framework, that like, that, that like sort of management committee where, um, the, the, you know, the, the key decision makers are all working together through the same process. I don't think the sporting director should be signing players beyond the manager's um, 
going against the manager's decisions because I think that can create a lot of internal conflict. I think it's it's just an interest of both both those roles to work together the best they can and both have an understanding. So a sporting director would have an understanding of how the football club would work. So you mentioned your club Celtic, so he would have an understanding of what, what that is, what, what the successes are going forward, what the club wants to be identified at, and then um, and then working with the coach and the manager to, to both go in that forward direction and both try and drive the momentum forward and create success. Yeah, I mean, the, the way the way I see it now, David, is I think it's fairly important that the director of football and manager, as you said, kind of sing off the same hymn, uh, sing, sing off the same hymn sheet, so to speak, because if the director of football goes over the manager's head, that's going to create the conflict, and then it's not going to work. But it, another fairly important part of that is also player relationships. Now, we touched on Eddie Howe there briefly. In terms yeah. of him, him as a manager, what type of manager was he on the training ground? Was he like a man manager? Was he a tactician? Or was he just everything? Yeah, he's. Uh, I, I would say in terms of his coaching, it was it was very. It was like a teacher. His coaching was excellent. Um, he had a clear sort of playing philosophy, and it was a very attractive style of football, um, possession based but very attacking. Um, so in terms of, it was a clear identifiable style. So if um, during my time and during their time in the Premier League, Bournemouth always had a certain playing style that people could, you know, identify, and that would, and that, and I think that's what that's what he wanted um, was that clear footballing strategy. So, and that was and that was implemented throughout. So a lot of the younger players that came, you know, started to sort of came around like Sam Surridge. They was all come through that sort of Bournemouth, that that, that Bournemouth philosophy and um, man management with the players was was excellent um, in terms of how you handle players on a day to day basis and that was from a you know from a footballing and non footballing perspective because um, I think the top managers and Ed is certainly one of those would. They have an understanding of that they're dealing with um, human beings as well as football players. So to understand them as people um, and to also understand them what takes makes them tick from a football performance level, combining the two would give you um, a much better chance to, you know, to, to bring together a sort of a cohesive sort of team going forward rather than just um, understanding them as football players. And I think Potter was very good at that as well. If you can get managers that that really understand that, and Ed certainly does, I think you definitely get more of a rounded, a rounded individual, and you definitely get more chance of getting a more successful football team. Yeah, I mean, as you said, there are about Eddie Howe and yourself. What I liked about that, it's implemented throughout the whole club, throughout the academy structure. I think, in my opinion, I've touched on it on my last podcast. I think Celtic's downfall is every bit of the structure, and from first team to academy level, even down to underage teams. There's no structure of playing. There's no way of going. There's no thinking behind that. It's just kind of do what you're told and then you'll see if you get in the first team after that. But as yourself, David and Eddie Howe keep getting linked with various roles at uh, Celtic Football Club, just mm-hmm. from a fresh a fresh perspective, what is your your impression of Celtic Football Club from the outside? Yeah, um, I mean, Celtic historically is, is, a, is a massive club. It's... Um, you know, it's knee deep in history. It's it's had you know tremendous success over the last sort of nine ten years in terms of winning titles and being um, featuring regularly in European competition. Um, 
so it's it's certainly sort of one of the biggest clubs in sort of north of the border in Scotland and I think it's a club that's you know will always demand success and quite rightly so with the history. Um, I think it's a club that um, should be competing every year, especially for the for the Premiership and other cups available um, domestically, and also um, being competitive in Europe and having um, like say having those sort of younger players coming through as well, um, because especially now with the current. Sort of transfer market and the change or new change in the EU regulations. I think not just Celtic, but a lot of clubs that have big academy structures will will certainly be looking at underneath because um, the accessible accessibility to the markets is not going to be as um, easy as it was before. So homegrown talent, local talent, and how you produce that and integrate into your first team is going to play much more of a key role. Yeah, I think I'm actually glad you brought that up, David, as well. I'm conscious of the time as well, but. In terms of, as you said, there's going to be lots of red tape around the European markets with Brexit and things like that. So just quickly, how could you overcome that? Is it just about setting your scouting network up within the UK and Ireland markets? Um, no, not necessarily, because there's, certain, there's still certain... Um, you can still obtain European players, but there's, there's also rules and regulations of, of how you do that now. And there's also a, you know, a, a point system as well, which can... Um, identify players particularly quickly so you don't have to sort of jump through red tape or go through the process and then it'd be players where you have to go through that process if you're looking at European so um, it could in, in my opinion it will sort of it could focus more on homegrown and British talent but also um, a club the size of Celtic will still have its eye on sort of the European um, players as well so Again, it's not going to be easy as accessible. So in terms of the recruitment, again, it's understanding the club, what the club's objectives are, the type of players that they're going to come in, the, the philosophy, the identifiable processes that you have on the pitch. Once you've got all those narrowed in, then you can start looking at the markets, wherever they might be, of where you're looking to identify. And obviously your financial parameters will contribute towards that as well. Um, and then it's about being cute, the transfer market with your with your recruitment strategies, whether that be to... Um, recruit players um, in a certain age parameters that you know that um, Celtic have traditionally sold on. So some of the ones you've mentioned before for, um, for for bigger money and they've gone on to do bigger things like Van Dyke and Dembele. Um, so it's, it's just about understanding all those processes and then putting it all together to um, to try and sort of get the best the best quality of player within your within your scouting remit. Yeah, I mean. I think it's quite interesting to say the point system of things and I think it will be important for the youth academy to be set up properly at Celtic Park just to get the youth players coming through because at the moment there seems to be no pathway for them. There's been a lot of youth players leaving Celtic in terms of like young Jack Edison, uh, Carmo Gondavelli is going to be leaving on a free, which is quite mm. disappointing. But mm. touching upon Pochettino and Eddie Howe, who, who, which one of them or any of the managers you've worked under did you have the best relationship with? Both of them, both of them as good as each other, I'd say. Um, and and that was for myself. Um, it's so key to have a good relationship, especially when you're in that sort of first team recruitment roles and you're in that sort of making those decisions on sort of elite players. It's, it's so key to have those um, good relationships with the first, not just the managers, but the whole of the first team staff as well, because sometimes. You know, first team staff like the first team coach could come to, you know, 
to watch certain games, um, especially if it's the goalkeeping coach or a specialist coach as well, then it's, it's having the manager and the whole first team sort of support staff when it comes to sort of decision making on players, have them have them all on on side and on corner and developing those um, sort of personable um, relationships are, are key. So um, for myself, it's uh, I'm still sort of um, in. Sort of, I would like to say that I have a good relationship still with both managers now. Yeah, I mean. I think it's fantastic. You've had a, a brilliant career and the managers you've worked under have been absolutely world-class. And I, I, I do appreciate yourself coming on, David, but just to end the show quickly here, we usually do a quiz, but I'm not going to do a quiz because it's only us doing you beat me hands down. But could you <laughs> give me a five-a-side team of players you've identified that you think would be a good five-a-side team? Uh, yeah, it's um, a good one. Uh, I'd say, obviously, I'm going to have to put Wilf in there from a, from a younger age group. Yeah, uh, I would say song. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd put Dalielli in there. Then I would I would put players like um, younger ones, like, like some of the younger ones at Tottenham now that are coming through. Players like Troy Parrott um, in there as well, because I think he's going to be sort of a, a, a potential success and. Who else would I like to say? I'll say Callum Wilson. Callum Wilson. So, Saha, Song, Ali, Troy Parrott and Wilson. What a five-a-side team. Full of pace and power in that team anyway. It's but, very attacking. Yeah, it's very attacking. I think it'd be a bit exposed defensively, but sure, it's all about attacking football. I, I do appreciate yourself coming on, David, and thanks for coming on to the show. You're our first ever special guest on the End of Sales podcast, and I do hope we can hear from you again at some point, maybe in the future. But thanks very much, David. Thanks for coming on the show. No problem. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. And that's the the show ended, guys. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Friday, when we do our usual podcast, we'll speak again. In the meantime, stay well and keep safe. Hail, hail.